0: This is Daniela O'Hard, and you're listening to Designing the 21st Century. We're host the most innovative, interesting talents who have shaped the design culture of today. With me, architect Tom Kundig. He's a partner in the award-winning firm Olson Kundig Architects, which is based in Seattle, Washington. I've discovered Tom's incredible, elegant, beautiful houses years and years ago and fell in love. Tom's buildings are highly engaged with the landscape and their strong relationship with nature has come to define their identity because context is so meaningful to him. Hi, Tom. How are you?
1: Hi, Daniela. I'm doing great. How about yourself?
0: Good and great. Where are you?
1: Seattle, Washington.
0: You are? And are you enjoying the early summer?
1: Uh, Always. Seattle's early summer is mixed. It's always sometimes fantastic. It is a beautiful corner of the world, but sometimes it can be a little challenging also. We're in a beautiful spot right now. I mean, the weather is fantastic. Air is fresh. It's springtime.
0: What's your favorite season? I know you are so connected to nature and we're going to talk about it, but what's your favorite season?
1: Oh that's a really good question because it's it's actually changing as i as I, I get older my my favorite season traditionally was fall because uh, especially in the mountains, that was the time when there were frankly fewer people. You could actually enjoy the mountains more in a solo situation, which was important to me and it was also It was colder temperatures and that meant that the mosquitoes and the flies were basically uh, uh, tempered a little bit. But what's interesting is now we've got a mountain hut. Uh, It's off the grid. It's way up in the mountains in the North Cascades. And uh, springtime has now become a favorite season because the snow is still sort of up in the mountains. Obviously, the flowers are coming up. The animals are are moving around. They're sort of waking up and uh, it's a fascinating time.
0: You know, I've been doing interviews and talks with architects for many, many, many years. And in New York, I live in New York, but this one is going to be a little bit different because if one day I build a house,
1: I want you to design it. Ah, well, fantastic. Well, uh, that's an honor on so many levels, especially coming from uh, your background and your understanding of architecture, because at the end of the day, what we do It's almost instinctual, in a sense, um, with the client also. And I will say this until I am not doing this anymore. Good buildings really only happen with uh, good clients and good contractors.
0: You you know, I I find your houses really magical, but also I'm very connected to them. Even though I live in New York, which is so far from you. But they do have everything I personally love in architecture. Perfect. The harmony, the comfort. And they're very pristine and they also have air and light and they are so, so beautiful. So I want to speak to you today about your residential design, which is only mm-hmm. just one part of what you do, but that's what we're going to talk about. Is that
1: okay? It's, it's definitely okay because I'm sure you've heard that I, did, I really think the residential design is the basis of everything architects do. Mm-hmm. I heard almost exactly the same thing from Glenn Merkitt out of Australia, who of course made a heck of a career out of residential, impactful career out of residential architecture. And he said to me once uh, when I was in Australia, visiting some of his projects, he said, residential architecture is the architecture that the profession of architecture has forgotten. And in fact, it's the most important architecture because it's the the beginning. It's the shelter. It's the It's the source of everything we do. So we have Sorry for this long answer, Daniela, because I think it's really important. We have a tradition here in the office, even though we do large-scale commercial projects. Residential is the core. It, it really is the driver.
0: And, and, you know, your houses very much belong to the landscape and very much particularly mm-hmm. your landscape. And you, you, you were born in California, but you are raised in Washington State and you mm-hmm. know it so well. I know you ski and you climb and you know the landscape. What does it mean to you to live in Washington?
1: Great question. I'm going to back into it from New York, because even though you live in New York, you actually live in a context as exciting as the context I grew up with, a natural context I grew up with in Washington. I think at its root, again, architecture is about the context of the place. So I love New York, of course. Who doesn't love New York? And I I love LA. I love these urban centers because, in fact, The drivers to any work I do in New York or LA or San Francisco or wherever they are, any urban center, Seoul, Korea, about the context of the place. And Washington State could not be, I don't believe, a better context of the natural world. And the reason I say that is that Washington State and uh, Northern Idaho and and sort of Southern British Columbia, where I kind of grew up, basically spent my formative years, has all the zones. It goes all the way from desert to Alpine within a few miles. So you can experience a full conditions, high desert, challenging environment, literally on the doorstep uh, of where I grew up. We have everything. We have mixed trees, forests, we have rivers, we have oceans. And, you know,
0: and I see the connection that I love your architecture so much because there is another architect who was born and raised in Washington and whose work I admire and actually, his work really brought me to do what I do today. And he was born in Spokane, which is where you spent your childhood, right? Mm-hmm. In 1905, just exactly half a century before you <sighs> were
1: born. Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, of course. And he grew up in the Hangman Valley. I'm guessing it's George Nakashima. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't, I, I guess I did know that he was trained as an architect and certainly, and he grew up in uh, Hangman Valley, which is literally like two or three miles from where I spent my childhood. So it's interesting that the two of you really
0: forge your personal language from the place where mm-hmm. the same place. So I see this sort, sort of like a closing circle. And I want to ask you about your work as an architect, because your buildings are very poetic. They're very artistic. But there is also to create a building like that, to create a house like that, you cannot be just a poet, you are an architect. And okay. I want to ask you whether you believe that every good architecture has to have those two
1: components. Totally agree. And I think the poetry, if it does emerge, if, if the, the sort of next level, instinctual, artistic sort of level, I think it comes from the source, which is, is, is the... Uh, the sort of functional tectonics of the building it's it, at the end of the day you know Danielle, you're kind of making an interesting point sometimes people will say oh you're an artist i go i don't think i'm really an artist i think i'm like a, more of like an applied artist where i'm taking a bunch of uh, sort of uh, contextual vectors structural and cultural and uh, program and i'm making a uh, building out of it so i'm being influenced by a bunch of uh, uh, influencers I know maybe, maybe there's an art to bringing all those things together, a poetry of bringing all those things together, but it's at its root, that's where I, I kind of start. I want to understand the problem. I want to understand the context. I want to understand the situation. And then from that, take it to the next level where you're either reconsidering it or rethinking it so that you're bringing it to almost uh, a mystical level, which is kind of uh, a mystery how it happens, frankly, but you know it does. And when, when it happens on the paper, there's a long answer, sorry, but um, I'm floor plan d- driven. So that's the way I understand buildings. That's the way I understand the tectonics and everything. So it's almost like looking at a sheet of music. I've discovered, I've thought of this, Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one thought of, thought of this, but all of a sudden it occurred to me that my friends that were composers, they can look at a sheet of music and they, and they hear the music. They know if it's good, if they know it's, or, or it's not. Or they just, it's just like, look at it. They're not reading it like all of us that were less musicians, um, we would go line by line line. They just look at it holistically. And all of a sudden I realized, well, that's the way I look at a floor plan. And it's almost like listening to music because you just know when it's good and you know when it's good in volumes and, you know, and elevations and whatever because you understand the building. And it's kind of like the sensation of listening to music.
0: This episode is supported by Rate, specializing in the sale of modern and contemporary art, ceramics, jewelry, and design at auction. With a strong independent voice and dedication to presenting materials in fresh and innovative ways, Rate hosts more than 50 curated auctions every year in a broad range of categories and at various price points, showing that everyone can live with art and design. Visit regoarts.com or rate20.com to view upcoming auctions and to contact specialists for contemporary evaluation of works you'd like to sell. So you, you very clearly say what it means to create a house like that. But what does it mean to be living in a house like that? What is <laughs> sort of the gift that you're giving your clients you know, how, how do you converse with their own memories?
1: Boy, that's a, that's a good question. And, and it's the root of to your, your, your point, Daniela. How do you take it from a commodity level to a, an art, artistic or a, a impactful, meaningful level? And it, you're absolutely right. You're touching on the history of the client, touching on the history of the site, history of the, the, the materials. There's a bunch of history. There's a bunch of presence. And there's a bunch of future all tied together into this into this place. And what I mean by that is an architecture that's meaningful to the person living in it, it should get better with time. If you listen to really terrific music, Jimi Hendrix, first time, I remember as a little kid, I remember hearing it and it was, and it was obviously, I was little, but I didn't totally understand it. The more you listen to it, the more you understand. You listen to Beethoven, you listen to Bach. Any of the, the old war horses that, in a sense, have transcended the mediocre and um, to another level. What it's about is nuance. It's about the discoveries you make, the more you listen to it. And if the architecture has been thoughtfully done, that's exactly what should happen. If I get a phone call from a client 10 years after they've lived there and they said, you know, I actually didn't believe you when you said this was going to start happening. And that's exactly what's happening. There could not be a better um, compliment because it's like watching a, the same movie over and over again. And all of a sudden, you just get so much more out of that movie because you're understanding. Of course, the large picture is understood. It's understood the first time you see it. But the more you watch it, the more you read that book, the more you read those um, masterpieces, the more you realize they are masterpieces.
0: And, and, and so these phone calls, these are the gifts that you get from your clients. Who is the ideal client here?
1: Uh, the ideal client comes to you and uh, understands after a certain period of time, they understand your history and they understand that you've actually had some successes in the, in the, and they understand them and they see some uh, connectivity with those uh, successes. Then you you hire me and the best client is the one that comes like what you're describing with an understanding of what the intention of architecture is, the limits and the possibilities of architecture. I always say this to clients, if you don't like me at the beginning right now, don't hire me because I'm going to be there from beginning to end. And I think the architect has to be there with the client from beginning, literally from beginning to end in a residential project. It's not a handoff. It's not a scribble that you hand off to a bunch of other people. Obviously, I work with a bunch of other people, but I have to be really part of that. That team. And the the big word is trust, that you have to trust whoever you hire, that you've hired somebody that is in the best way possible, instinctually, intellectually, resolving a situation that is going to mean something to you the longer you live there. How how many people work in your office? Well, it's a little scary to to say, because um, I, I don't know what the the ratio of architects to interior designers, to uh, landscape architects, to administration really is. But collectively, with all our administration and everything, there's about 200 people here. And that means that you know we all have our own sort of sectors, our own sort of work. It just couldn't be a more terrific partnership of, of different individuals. And let me make that point. Something really important here is that we've always said that this is a this is an office and this is an, uh, maybe an overstatement, but it's intentional. Um, we are sort of outsiders. We are sort of misfits, which has actually been a great thing um, because it's really, uh, it's really led to this collegial professional relationship, which I, which I think is just, uh, I you, just pinched you know, myself how lucky I'm Yeah,
0: you know, I think architecture mm-hmm. is probably the most beautiful profession, but I know that you did not mm-hmm. start thinking this way, but your father was an architect. Wait wait yeah. you change your mind.
1: <laughs> well, I, the reason I didn't want to be an architect I didn't like the uh, what I saw as a child, the personality of of architects, you know. There was just uh I don't know if it was arrogance or or whatever it was, I I thought it was I, I, it was confusing to me. I just didn't really appreciate, you know, that that what I read, misread or however, that culture, but what I did read clearly was how important those architects were for me ultimately. And then in particular, that the architects also had a relationship with a bunch of artists. And there were uh, there was an art, artist culture in uh, my hometown where I grew up that was really interesting. So that was hugely impactful to me. I was more interested in sciences as a kid. I don't know why. I did do art. I always did art. But I was also interested in geophysics. Physics, I don't know why. I just was really fascinated with the instruments of destruction basically, which were the big mining facilities and the big logging facilities that I grew up around. I was just fascinated with the machinery. And I went to school to become something probably in the geophysics, hopefully in the geophysics. And I just missed something. I missed something that was really important to me, which was this poetic underpinning that was important to me for some whatever reason. And architecture is kind of an ideal situation because you got the technical, you've got the physics and you've got the poetry. Somebody said, Architecture successful architecture is a successful intersection between uh, the rational and the poetic.
0: The, is is this something that helps <laughs> you with a new way of you know digital technology in architecture? The the fact that this part of your brain is is so is working this way. <laughs> that,
1: <clears throat> the digital part.
0: Yes, I have a heart.
1: Yeah, I have a hard time with the digital technology.
0: Well, what do Um, you think the negative aspects of digital revolution? Because, you know, I'm I'm sure you work a lot, you know, with digital technology, but what really what we know that digital allows, which is, you know, those distorted forms and sculptural space, you know, shapes, those are not
1: found in your architecture. Mm -mm. Because it's not, for me, it's not rational based because maybe I've, For I got an instinct to look at things in in sort of a a sustainable, rational way. You know, what are the parts and pieces? You know, trees go straight, so the lumber is straight. You know, if you make curvy wood pieces, you're actually dropping a whole bunch of wood down onto the shop floor. Steel beams come out straight. Uh, Concrete can be shaped, but then the formwork is is straight. So to me, there's a rational basis, uh, uh, sustainability basis, financially and energy that I want to use the pieces more or less in their natural state. So if rocks are, you know, naturally sort of differently shaped, I, I like to embrace that shape, this makes sense. So there's the less energy that's put into sort of the underpinnings, the structural underpinnings of, a, of an idea are important to me. Now, what digital does allow you to do is to imagine uh, an equation of some kind to make a shape unimaginable shapes. And, and they're really some some people are really skilled at that. And I think they're fantastic. I don't think I'm particularly adept at that. But when I did work on the sculptures with Harold, there was a lot of stuff on the, on the shop floor. Now, I, I, just, I have a hard time taking that to the larger, the larger buildings. But in, in obviously, sculptures, I mean, there are sculptures out the Henry Moore is out there. I mean, they're just unbelievable. I just sat there and I just look at that stuff and I just go, oh my God, how poetic. But the delivery of these buildings are really important to me. And the digital underpinnings, I think, has lost, and I'm just going to take a risk here as an old person that grew up drawing and drawing floor plans, that I felt like there was more, back to the composers, there was more of an intimate connection with that drawing. It was more like it was part of the brain, part of the hand and then the pencil on the paper. And I would notice that even as a kid, before digital, you would make nuanced changes to the plan or the detail as you were drawing. It kind of allowed you to do that. All that says is that the tool that was being used was really uh, a good connector from the brain to what was happening. Now, ultimately, digital can maybe do that and that um, digital can actually then begin taking those poetics and uh, translating them into the building. I don't think it does it right now. I think it's got some uh, time before it can uh, really find that 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 spot.
0: Well, who to you is the heroic figure in the history of architecture? I, I can't I can't avoid by thinking of Frank Lloyd Wright when I look at your houses. but I'm not sure that's him.
1: Uh, uh-uh, it's not him. But you know who it is? It's probably Louis Sullivan. Believe it or not, who preceded preceded Frank against all odds. Um, I think Louis was uh, kind of a, a, a hero, frankly, and there are many others that are really important. I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm deeply influenced by 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 Scarpa. Yeah, uh, you know.
0: Oh my God, uh, my favorite, my favorite. Have you been oh, to his cemetery in Italy?
1: Oh, many times, and you know it. Yeah, it. And I didn't really know about Scarpa until about thirty years ago, and uh, all of a sudden I went, "Oh my goodness." And then I went and visited the cemetery and, and, and his other projects. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. Uh-huh. And Chereau and and, and uh, Maison de Verre. I was really lucky to work for uh, the owner of the Maison Robert de Verre. Robert Turbin. Robert Trubin. Yeah. Yep. And so I I said. In fact, when he called me, he said something like, oh, "I just bought you know Maison de Verre." I thought it was my friends just goofing around with me because they knew. April
0: Fool? Was it on April Fool? I, I bet it probably
1: was. And, um, I thought for sure, ah, this is, this can't be true because that, um, obviously that building is, is hugely impactful.
0: What is your advice to someone who wants to build their own dream home, but they're not sure about the direction. They, they, they have no idea really where to go, how to think, how how to start thinking about what would be your dream home.
1: Well, um, I, I got some, some good advice from, um, the founder of the Amman Resorts, uh, Adrian Zecca. I, I spent some time with Adrian uh, traveling to some of his projects. And he once said something uh, that picture is worth a thousand words, but experience is worth 10,000 words. And the advice I would give is just like I think what you've done, Danielle, is just immerse yourself into learning about it before you really pull the trigger and, and, and go to next steps. and And look at Read books, read magazines, get any sort of images that, for whatever reason, are impactful. Tear them out, put them in a Pinterest folder or something like that. Um, Don't use them necessarily stylistically, but try to understand what is it about that image that's important. So so
0: I'm going to take this advice, and if one day I decide to build a house, I'm going to call you.
1: Okay, terrific. Thanks for
0: joining me today. This is Danielle O'Had, and you are listening to Designing the 21st Century.